Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Surprising interviews, your favorite podcasts, and now an easy way to listen to your favorite station live. NPR One's ready to make driving, commuting, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Christelle Alonzo's been doing comedy for a while. She's got a new special on Netflix. A couple years back, she starred in the TV show Christella on ABC. Early in her career, though, she was doing the college circuit a lot, you know, traveling the country, playing at university amphitheaters and in lecture halls and so on. It's a nice gig if you can get it. It pays pretty good. And it was at one of those shows that she first figured out what it was like to be famous, like the kind of famous where people line up to get your autograph, or at least that's what she thought she was finding out. There was one show that I did where after the after the show, all these students lined up to ask me for my autograph, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my god! In my mind, I'm like, girl, you're killing it. Then I find out that a lot of these students have never met a Latino in their life, and that their Spanish teacher had sent them to my show for extra credit. And they had to get an autograph from me to prove that they went to the show. So this autograph was basically saying, yep, I met a Latina. (laughs) It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Cristela about her new special on Netflix. Cristela grew up poor in South Texas, like actually poor. She didn't figure out until she was in college that it was weird to grow up in an abandoned diner. And I called, I called my family, and I'm like, do we live in a diner? <laughs> and everybody started, like, my brothers and my sister are like, yeah, stupid. Like, you didn't, I'm like, I didn't know. I was a kid. I was a kid. You know, I had no idea. Then I'll talk with Stretch Armstrong. He's a DJ, a writer, a record collector. In the 90s, he co-hosted a hip-hop radio show called Stretch and Bobito in New York. It is basically impossible to overstate how important this show was, especially in breaking new artists. Basically, everyone in New York City wanted to find them and hand them a demo tape. The only thing that saved them from being buried in a sea of demos, the only time anyone knew where they were, was when they were on the air. And when were they on the air? 1 to 5 a.m. I think we look back on that time and we, we wonder if things would have been different if the show uh, didn't end at 5 in the morning. I think if people could wait for us outside at a reasonable hour, they may have. <laughs> but nobody wants to wait till 5.30 a.m. <laughs> Plus, I'll tell you about maybe my favorite Saturday Night Live sketch ever. Nah, I'm just playing. It's not going to supplant tales of fraud and malfeasance and railroad hiring practices. But it's pretty amazing. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Cristela Alonso. She's a veteran stand-up comic and actress. You might have seen her on the ABC sitcom Cristela. She created the show. She starred in it. She also wrote and produced it. She was actually the first Latina ever to do that on a network. She was born in a small town in South Texas. Her mom was an immigrant whose visa expired. Cristela remembers having to hide her from the Border Patrol and coming home every day, wondering if her mom might have gotten picked up in the last workplace raid. Cristela was also really, really poor growing up. That's something she talks about a lot in her comedy. In fact, her latest special, Lower Classy, is a really funny ode to that time in her life. Here's a little bit of Lower Classy. Cristela says that she never really thought about being poor as a kid, but that maybe her feelings about the band New Kids on the Block were sort of illustrative of her place in American society. Let's take a listen. When I was in fourth grade, I realized I was poor because I was a really big fan of New Kids on the Block. Loved them, right? I couldn't afford to see them in concert, right? So I had this fantasy when I was a kid, you know, that I was going to meet them and they were going to fall in love with me, right? No joke, you guys. This was the fantasy. Fourth grade. 
I was gonna be the maid on their tour bus. And I was gonna clean things so good that they were gonna fall in love with me. Like in my head, I thought they were gonna get on the tour bus and they were gonna be like, oh my God, who made that bed right there? You know what I mean? And then I would say, I made that bed. And they would be like, we love you now. And I'm like, ah! That was it. That was in fourth grade. Christelle Alonso, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. That is maybe the single saddest stand-up comedy <laughs> bit I've ever watched anyone perform in my entire life, and I've seen a lot of stand-up comedy. Uh, thank you? <laughs> I feel like I told my wife the setup for that bit uh, last night, and... Uh-huh. Uh, and she nearly started crying <laughs> from having had it related to her. Well, you know, I, yeah, I know, I know. But that's kind of that's kind of like a that's kind of like what makes stand up cool is when you can actually make jokes about something that's sad because everything can be funny if you have the right angle perspective to it. You know, I, but yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> is this is this like? Um... Uh, something that you discovered along the way that um, you could actually just write jokes about the literal saddest parts of your entire life? Yes. It was actually one of those things where uh, my my life overall has been pretty sad. (laughs) 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 So... You know, knock knock. Who's there? Depression. You know, it's like uh, so. It it for me, stand up was about. Uh, it was autobiographical. I chose to be like that from the beginning because no one can take those jokes away from you. No one can ever steal those jokes away. They they can't. A guy can't really do that and really own it. And for me, I think that uh, I started doing stand up after my mom passed away because I couldn't afford therapy, and uh, I started stand up really kind of talking about serious things from the get-go. So it kind of became my thing in a way because so many people started really connecting with what I was saying and it kind of felt cathartic. Have you had the opportunity to have therapy since? I actually just started therapy again. This is how fun. Like, I started therapy. I went the first time in 2000, 2010. And I was really depressed. I didn't know what I was doing. And I just needed help. And my boyfriend at the time took me to therapy. And uh, the last session that I could afford, the therapist told me, you know, you're suffering from a severe depression. We're going to talk about that next week. And I was like, well, this is a to-be-continued episode. <laughs> I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> and I, I, I stopped going because I couldn't afford it anymore. I couldn't afford I had no insurance. I was really broke. And I'm like, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just imagining instead of those, like, chimes that you hear that signify the hour is over, you know, that kind of boom. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. We're out of time. It was just bump, bump, bump. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly what it was. It seems like. And, you know, I'm I'm basing this on my experience with my own family members, that there, there is, I think, for some people, the feeling that, like, part of enduring the unendurable, that when we, like, go up against mm-hmm. the hugest problems in our life, like real poverty, mm-hmm. um, uh, your mother was a single mother mm-hmm. who uh, was an immigrant, first-generation mm-hmm. immigrant, and so on and so forth, that, like... Even acknowledging that they are problems mm. or asking for help is just going to be the, you know, the piece that falls out of the seawall and the ocean's just going to sure subsume sure. everything. Well, you know, I also grew up in a neighborhood where, uh, you know, the kids would make fun of you if you tried to better yourself. You know, like, hey, what are you doing, reading? That's dumb. Like, why are you reading? You know, it's like so it's like that thing where you kind of – in my neighborhood, it was always very – we were very used to just suffering and accepting that that's life, suffering. So it wasn't till I moved out from that neighborhood that I realized life was different. Like people had things I didn't know existed, you know. I didn't know air conditioning was available in houses, <laughs> 
till I was in high school. No, maybe junior high, but maybe high school. I had to go do a school project at a friend's house. And I walked in and I'm like, why is your house so cold? Because I loved cold. We didn't have air conditioning. She's like, oh, is it too cold? I'll just, I'll lower the AC. Which I had heard at school. Like, And I thought, I thought only businesses had them. <laughs> and then when I found that out, I'm like, oh, my God. And I remember going home and telling my mom, mom. There's air conditioning for homes. <laughs> and my mom's like, yeah, stupid. We can't afford it. Like, of course. And I'm like, why did no one tell me that? You know, it's that kind of stuff. My wife uh, and I have been together since high school. And like one of the first things I found out about her was that until until high school, um, she believed based on the cooking of her uh, father, who was quite young when she was born. Um, that a burrito was a tortilla with refried beans and slices of cucumber. (gasps) (laughs) You've never heard of that before. (laughs) She just thought that was what a burrito was. Oh, my God. Um, tell me about the town that you grew up in, because I, I have never been to South Texas, and I don't know what it's like. I grew up in a, a little town called San Juan, Texas, which I always tell people that I grew up in McAllen, because that's the big town. And even then, people are like, what? Uh, it's a border town, and growing up, we used to go to Mexico every Monday to visit my grandmother. And uh, people don't understand, in the border town... This is what's interesting is that culturally we talk about immigration and we talk about like, you know, people are coming here and taking away our jobs and everything. Actually, where I live, we kind of coexist. You know, um, Mexicans come to the United States to buy our products because they always think that the Mexican products are substandard in quality. So they'll come to the departments, you know, to the stores and they'll stock up on detergents and soaps and everything. And then at the end of the day, they go back to Mexico. You know, so my upbringing, my town was very, it, it was its own Mexican, its, its own Mexican style. Even when people say Tex-Mex, no, that it was completely different. It had its own thing where going to Mexico was an everyday thing. There were so many kids that would go to Mexico. Kids, teenagers would go to like Mexico and drink in Mexico and then come back, you know, and our whole community was predominantly Mexican. I, I was a theater nerd in high school, and I didn't know how different we were because every play we did was a Mexican production of every play. <laughs> so I always tell this story. Like my freshman year, my school did The Diary of Anne Frank, and we're all Mexicans. So we're doing <laughs> – so there's like like all these Mexicans telling the story of the Holocaust – and we thought it was normal, you know, and it wasn't until I left again that I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of unusual. What's weird is that I remember in high school with theater, because we were all Mexican, we were never told that we couldn't do anything. We were accepted. We were allowed to do like Into the Woods. We could do like we could do all of these musicals, all these shows. And I remember an acting teacher of mine said, as a Latina, you can only do West Side Story chorus line rent was still on the edge of being kind of a hit we weren't really sure and that was devastating it's bullseye my guess is the comic cristela alonso her new stand-up special lower classy is available now on netflix what do you feel like people assume about the world that you grew up in I think that people you know it's the stereotype of like you know it's the assumption that um i mean like i feel like probably you're a stand-up comic you've probably had 15 years of people coming up to you after a show and telling you what assumptions they oh, have, like, the directly. Time. Well, you know, especially uh, before I had my TV show, I was really popular in the college circuit. And I was getting booked in Nebraska, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan. And, and uh, like, I'll tell you this story. There was, this, there was one show that I did where after the, after the show, all these students lined up to ask me for my autograph. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh, my God. In my mind, I'm like, girl, you're killing it. Then I find out that a lot of these students have never met a Latino in their life. And that their Spanish teacher 
had sent them to to my show and for extra credit. <laughs> and they had to get an autograph from me to prove that they went to the show. So this autograph was basically saying, yep, I met a Latina. <laughs> it was so mind-blowing because this wasn't in like 1894 or even 1953. I'm saying 2013. Was your mother documented? Yes, she was. She actually she came on a visa. And this is actually why I like to talk about this. She came on a visa. I don't have any family pictures from my mom that aren't passport photos. Because she tried her entire life since she was living in Mexico to become a citizen here. And it's so hard. People don't understand. Um, she wanted to become a resident alien. And in order to do that, you have to go back to Mexico and basically ask them for permission to become one. And she tried three times. And she got told no every time. And back then, every time was $5,000 to try, which in the 80s, a lot of money my family, we were squatters in a diner, like the first seven years of my life. My mom was trying to become a resident alien while we were living in, while we were squatting in this diner. So my mom, her visa expired and she stayed in the United States trying to become a resident alien, trying to get that status. So while she was waiting for the process, she was undocumented. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to live in a border town in a situation where, where you're a kid, you don't necessarily really understand exactly what the rules are about immigration and your mom and your family and f I'm sure like your neighbors and friends. Mm -hmm. um, but you live in this physical space where uh, the Border Patrol has a weird legal authority and a physical presence that, you know, isn't felt anywhere else. I mean, there's there's roadblocks and yeah. things within 30, 40 miles of the border that don't exist anywhere else in the United States. Uh, it's very good at instilling uh, instilling fear in people. And uh, I think that's one of the biggest uh, problems is that uh, we don't get enough information, enough facts. Did you feel scared? Uh, I did. And see, that's what people don't understand is that I was born in Texas but because my mom spent so much time being undocumented trying to become a legal re resident, I become what my mom is. If she's gone, I'm done. And people don't understand that. It's, it's not like, it's not, you know, when people use the term anchor baby, whatever it is, you know, it's like they make it seem like, oh, well, I'm like the golden child, you know. Oh, everybody, you know, I'm just giving you freedom for everybody's free now. I'm here. No, actually, it's the opposite. Let's hear some more comedy from Cristela Alonso. Her new special is called Lower Classy. Um, she talks about the election a lot, as you would expect. Uh, it was sort of what was going on. And um, in this clip, she's, she's talking about what uh, a lot of people are thinking about when they talk, when they were talking in the election about bringing back the good old days. You know what pissed me off when I started hearing people say, we need to go back to the good old days. We need to go back to the good old days. You ever notice it's only white people saying that <laughs> Brown people, when was our good old days, right? <laughs> if it was really the good old days, why don't you ever see black people doing Civil War reenactments, right? You never see that. Never see that conversation. Hey, Lamar, what are you doing this weekend? I'm gonna go to my neighbor's house. I'm gonna cook and clean for free. You know, like the good old days. I love that joke. <laughs> um, I, I, have a, I have a good buddy who is a stand-up comic mm -hmm. who is uh, half Mexican and half Italian. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, in his career, he is, you know, the characters that he plays tend to be Latino characters. And, you know, it's an important part of his life. Mm -hmm. um, but he doesn't speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. And when he goes and when he would get booked on uh, like a Latino theme show, mm -hmm. which this is like a popular thing in stand-up comedy where that always has a borderline offensive food name, <laughs> like Spicy Chili Night or something <laughs> yeah, like yes, that. Yes, 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 yes. Um, he would really struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
because it was not his world. Mm-hmm. And I know that earlier in your career, you toured on like Latin comedy shows yeah. where you have to like there's an expectation there. Absolutely. That you are going to deliver the Latino. I did not fit in at all. It was painful. When I moved to Los Angeles, I tried getting into the clubs, and there was one club in Los Angeles that uh, sent me away and told me that I had to go do the Mexican restaurants and I had to go do the Mexican bar shows and everything because I was Latina and I couldn't get a spot at that club. And I did because I had to go up. And I was banished to this circuit where so many times I would just eat it. It was painful, but I needed gas money. Or, you know, or like they would pay me in like food. And for a while, I found myself slowly trying to placate to those audiences. And I hated myself. And one day I woke up and I realized I'm not being genuine to me, to like my, myself. I'm not being honest about what I want to talk about. And the moment I realized that I was doing that, I quit, which led me to being completely broke, which led to me not getting booked by anybody which just led to me just completely devastated. I didn't go on the road for about a year and a half, and I used that time to rebuild and really kind of say, say like, this is going to be my set, and if nobody likes it, then, then I can't do stand-up. We'll finish up my conversation with Cristela Alonso after a short break. She'll tell me about how to live comfortably when the place you call home is an abandoned diner. You know, in case you ever find yourself squatting in an abandoned diner. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Kia Nero with the launch of Kia's first ever ground-up hybrid crossover. Like all Kia models, Nero comes with an industry-leading 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty program, a testament to its outstanding quality and reliability. Discover the new technologically advanced Kia Nero, a smarter kind of crossover. All warranties and roadside assistance are limited. See retailer for details or go to kia.com. One other thing, Bullseye listeners, on Saturday, February 11th, we're going to be bringing you the best in stand-up comedy live at the Brooklyn Academy of Music as part of BAM and WNYC's Radio Love Fest. It's the Bullseye Comedy Night. You'll hear comedy from greats hand-selected by me, like Solomon Giorgio, Maeve Higgins, Hari Kondabolu, and Phoebe Robinson. Yeah, that's right. The co-host of Two Dope Queens and solo host of So Many White Guys is going to be on the Bullseye stage live and in person. It'll all be held down by the amazing and very, very funny Guy Branham, host of our sister show, Pop Rocket. Plus, I'm going to be making an appearance by video. Again, that's Bullseye's Comedy Night on Saturday, February 11th at BAM in Brooklyn. Tickets are on sale now. Just go to MaximumFun.org and scroll down to live shows for tickets and more info. Or Google Radio Love Fest. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Cristela Alonso. She was the star, creator, and producer of the ABC sitcom Cristela. She has a new stand-up comedy special out now on Netflix. Was there a time when you considered... Uh, Falling into the cultural category of the white comedians that were around you, which is to say, like, leaving leaving all of your specific cultural experiences out and just sticking with your feelings about friends <laughs> or Starbucks or other things that... You know, I've, I, I have to be really honest. I uh, There was a part of me for a while that craved the ability to do that. I would watch specials and stuff, and I'm like, why can't I just write about coffee? <laughs> like, like, why, like, why can't I make coffee funny? But God, I really wanted to. I even, and I and I tried sometimes. I would sit down in my notebook because I don't use my laptop. I write in a notebook, and I'm like, what's it? What's a general joke? Like, can I write a joke about pie? <laughs> you know? And then after that, I'm like. Girl, you don't like pie. Why are you writing a joke about pie? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, so I I strayed away from it. But it's one of those things that I think it's one of the pitfalls that I think a lot of us do, especially in stand up, is that um, you see what's currently popular and you want to emulate it. 
I feel like one of your signatures on stage is your smile and laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. I love that I smiled and laughed as you said smiled and laughed. Well, I mean, it's something that you use when you are happy and making a joke. Mm-hmm. It's also something that you use when you are delivering a brutal truth yes. in an effort not to lose the audience <laughs> until you get to the punchline. Well, you know, actually, it comes from like a, it comes from my mom. My mom grew up in a very uh, abusive household, and she she tried not to be that person, but she at sometimes could be pretty abusive. And as a kid, I always wanted to make her happy, and I wanted to make her laugh so that she, even because I saw the sadness in her face of living her life, that as a kid I wanted to make her laugh, and I wanted to entertain her to kind of take her away from her reality. So when I'm on stage, I'm unaware that I'm doing it because I've been doing it my entire life. There was a picture that I saw of you as a kid. Mm -hmm. You're maybe 13 years old or something. Mm -hmm. And you're giving whoever is holding the camera just full future musical theater nerd. (laughs) Like, full. You are shining in this picture, right? My Yeah. And your mother is standing next to you and stone-faced as a human being, like the way that people yes. look in photographs of farmers from 1890, uh-huh. where they had to keep the same facial expression for 10 minutes <laughs> yes. so that it wouldn't blur. Like, yeah. just like, yes. she yes. looks like she just found out that her parents died or something. Yeah. Yeah, my, my friends and I, I my, my, my friends who have immigrant parents, we always joke about how like, uh, like we try to take pictures of our parents and when they're smiling because they don't smile in pictures that we try to sneak it in, but they're so good at telling when the camera was there <laughs> that they would just stop smiling and go into like that stone cold, like thing, like, like, like face, you know, it, it's, it, I re- I know that picture that you're talking about. It's like, I'm smiling and my mom's like, is this over? <laughs> Can we move on with our lives? Yeah. Or like I have work to do. Exactly. It's like, why are we taking a picture? This is depressing. (laughs) Like, why are we remembering when we're so poor? Like, why are we doing this? I felt like as I was watching your special, which you filmed, if I'm remembering correctly, in San Antonio, Mm -hmm. I heard laughter to your jokes of two kinds. Uh, One was the that's a funny joke laughter, Mm -hmm. your standard stand-up comedy laughter. One was like almost a wail of self-recognition, like the yes. feeling like I never imagined mm-hmm. someone would speak to my experience like this. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of laughter. And it happens in a lot of places that I go to. And it that laughter is what motivates me to keep doing it because, again, I am very hard on myself and I am very hard on myself. And uh, when I hear that laughter, I feel like that's why I do it. You said that you grew up for the first eight years of your life squatting in a diner. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? There was an abandoned diner in San Juan, Texas. Uh, My mom... um, my mom came from an abusive household, and then she married an abusive man, and she wanted to leave him. And I was, uh, she was pregnant with me. My dad wanted nothing to do with me. And uh, she ended up leaving him. She's a devout Catholic. I mean, she does not believe in divorce. She left him because she was scared for her life. Had nowhere to go. Had a second-grade education. Found this abandoned building. Old abandoned diner boarded up off the main street in our little town and we moved in there and she would there was a house next to the diner and she became friends with the neighbor and the neighbor let her use an extension cord so that we could have electricity in the diner I tell this story a lot about how my mom she used to have a space heater and she would this is back when they didn't have like safety features So you could actually move the space heater face up, and she would cook on that space heater for us. I thought everybody lived like that. When did you realize that that was different? Till I moved to Los Angeles, actually, because I never spoke about it. Like, it was that thing, like, 
we never really talk about specific details about how we grew up. Um, I was at a diner with some friends. And I started telling the story because the counter reminded me of the diner. And I started telling these stories about my childhood to these, I want to say, three friends. And they kind of gave me this weird face, like, what are you talking about? And then I started describing it more because now they're, like, investigating, like, what the hell is this? It, it wasn't until, like, that night that they told me, like, Christella, you lived in, you lived in a diner. I, I didn't even think about it. And I remember, like, they laughed at me because they thought I was lying, like, joking. And I called, I called my family. And I'm like, do we live in a diner? <laughs> and everybody started, like, my brothers and my sister were like, yes, yeah, stupid. Like, you didn't, I'm like, I didn't know. I was a kid. I was a kid. You know, I had no idea. And that's when I started realizing, like, I looked back. Had like a handful of pictures that we had, and I started remembering stories. It's that like moment at the end of Fight Club when you flash back and he realizes he's Tyler. <laughs> like you know, like it's that thing. I flash back and I'm like, not everybody grew up that way. I was like, not everybody grew up that way. Like no, like my family had to tell me, Christella, we're really poor. I didn't realize it till that moment because my mom did such a good job of making me feel happy. Was there a point when you realized that that experience was also a kind of superpower? That it was the- absolutely. You know, it, I didn't realize it wasn't until I when I started getting uh, auditions to like uh, all the auditions I I would get when I first started auditioning were maids with thick accents, like thick accents that I've never heard anybody use ever in their life, and I'm from a border town, right and I finally turned them all down. And that's when I realized that my upbringing, like the the hardship and everything, made me fearless. I'm very picky. I say no all the time to things because I grew up poor. Being poor made me fearless because what's the worst that can happen? I go back to being poor, lived it, had a great time with it. You know what I mean? I I go back to being poor. That's what poverty made me realize, that nothing is worth it. If it doesn't feel right to you, it's not worth it. And again, it's like, I know, even if I became poor, again, I would never be that poor. Because I'm a capable adult that at the end of the day, I can go stock shelves of big lots if I have to. Like I was a kid. I was actually living as a result of what my mom was capable of doing. And I know that because of her journey, I'm capable of a lot more. Crucial Alonzo's brand new special is called... <laughs> Lower Classy, it's on Netflix now. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Stretch Armstrong. In the 1990s, he co-hosted a show called Stretch and Bobito on a college radio station in New York. Together, the two of them broke a generation of hip-hop artists. Stretch and his co-host, Bobito Garcia, played demos and hosted freestyles from hundreds of rappers, including some of the biggest names in hip-hop today. Jay-Z, The Notorious B.I.G., Nas, Big Pun, many others. The show was chaotic, it was fun, and the hosts would do pretty much whatever they wanted. In other words, Stretch and Bobito embodied the free spirit and magic that you'd hoped to find on late-night radio back then. Stretch was no stranger to the club scene of New York City in the 1990s. He just wrote a book about its golden age, or at least its golden age through his eyes. It's called No Sleep, New York City Nightlife Flyers, 1988 to 1999. There's also a documentary about Stretch and Bobito. It's called Stretch and Bobito, Radio That Changed Lives. In this clip, you'll hear from one of the show's biggest fans, Buster Rhymes. I would play so much the tape would bust so I would get the steak knife and I would turn them screws until I got the frame open bro and I get a scissors and I would just cut a little edge off the scotch tape I match that back up put the frame I would wind the reel tight to save my stretching Bobito tape and I would go to school in front you want this tape five dollars <laughs> used to sell our tapes I sold y'all tapes I made money was drugs, B. <laughs> Stretch Armstrong, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. 
So um, I guess my first question is, given given that this new book is this huge compilation of uh, or compendium of uh, uh, nightlife flyers from New York, do you remember the first time you saw a hip hop DJ in person? Oh, vividly. It's uh, it's seared in my in my brain. I was a teenage uh, Clash fan, and luckily I had very cool parents who let me go alone, unescorted, to see the Clash at the pier. And, you know, like a like a novice, I got there, um, I think, at 8 p.m., which is the start time of, of the entire show, um, early enough to wait a good while before the opening act came out. And instead of uh, a band appearing on stage, Curtis Blow with his DJ, AJ Scratch, were the opening act. And... At that point, I had heard DJs. Um, I had seen DJs, specifically um, DST and Herbie Hancock's Rocket. That perhaps was my only visual reference ever of, of seeing a DJ. Um, so to see AJ Scratch cut records up on stage with, with an MC was, was pretty mind-blowing for me. How old were you? I must have been 14. <laughs> Definitely cool parents. Yeah, and and um, it, I was uh, I was sort of taking a, a walk down memory lane and trying to find more more information about that night in my mind, and and I couldn't, so I, I reached out to my parents. This is like last year, and I said, "Mom, Dad, I went I went to this Clash concert, which was really just kind of a a, a singularly super important." Uh, event in my life just in terms of you know seeing seeing this you know really important band um you know i was i wasn't even that far from the stage but also being a uh a pretty young kid and and allowed to go out and venture out you know on his own into an environment that was that was a little hairy i mean the clash would would attract a pretty interesting and and at times unruly crowd you know I said, do you remember me going to that show and how I got there? I mean, I didn't, you know, I'd have my own money. I didn't have my own really way of getting around town. I mean, I suppose I could have taken the bus because <laughs> I don't even think I was taking the train that much then. And and uh, my parents reminded me that they actually, they took me to that concert. They dropped me off and they waited in the car for about 20 minutes and watched the assortment of humanity walk <laughs> through the gates of the pier and they looked at each other and said, did we just make a huge mistake? <laughs> um, how much of a presence was hip-hop in your life when you were a teenager? This was the beginning of the 1980s when there wasn't much hip-hop on the radio. There certainly weren't hip-hop formatted stations. Um, and you went to this kind of weird private school, at least as you describe in, in the movie, this weird private school that was like pay as you can, so it was a very mixed crowd. My first introduction to hip hop was from kids that came from neighborhoods where hip hop was just a part of, just like the the fabric of every everyday life, where there were you know hip hop jams you know on the weekends and in uh, community centers and in parks and whatnot. And you know if you know anything about those types of jams, you know, they were they were open to all ages. So you know if there was a, a party in you know in a project rec room in the Bronx or Harlem or whatever, like parents would, would be there with their kids. I mean, the parents would want to, were the ones that wanted a party, but kids were, often kids were allowed to go. Um, so when hip hop really became this thing, you know, kids would, would come into school and um, and they'd be rapping. And, um, you know, it was uh, the rhymes that, you know, that these, you know, early hip hop groups were were spitting were you know they were for the most part I think you know compared to now they were pretty pretty uh, G rated um, certainly you know rappers delight you know had a few um, suggestive lines but it was nothing that would make parents uh, concerned um, and rappers delight was actually the first uh, my, my the first piece of hip hop music that I was exposed to um, and that really started a, a love affair not only with hip hop but with twelve inch um, 12 inch vinyl um, but yeah I think I heard that song you know on a on a Monday and that weekend I went to the record store and I bought it did you memorize Rapper's Delight? oh absolutely the whole like the 12 inch <laughs> version or the radio yes. version 
<laughs> yes, like the fifteen minute mix. <laughs> don't don't ask me to to, to rhyme right now. <laughs> I don't want you to lose listeners. This whole thing is just a setup for me to get you to rap. <laughs> you know, um, in the in the ten years or so that I was on the radio, um, particularly on WKCR with Bobito, um, I never rhymed. And Bob would rhyme all the time, and he was terrible. And it was <laughs> it was really, I think at first I thought it was funny. Then after a while, I think it it just started to annoy me. And that and that was just one of the the many ingredients in the in the stew of unpleasantness that that developed between me and Bob. I just wanted to have a show with a hundred percent good rap, and and when the host <laughs> is just really really uh you know putting putting a stain on it i was um i was getting progressively more and more bitter about it but we did we did a uh internet show together and i don't think anyone was listening at the time and i rhymed on the show and funny enough bob bobito has a, a cassette recording of me rapping and up to now he's been um he's been kind <laughs> enough to keep that to himself and thank you bob that's Let's keep it like that. You know he's always got something on you now, though, right? I've, I, I have things on him, trust me. As long as that doesn't fall into the hands of the Russians. Yeah, it's just thinking the same thing. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. We'll continue my conversation with Stretch Armstrong after a little break. Together, we will listen to something really, really amazing. One of the first known recordings of the Notorious B.I.G., recorded live on the air on Stretch and Bobito. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Are you looking for a brainy laugh? Check out the Ask Me Another podcast for hilarious puzzles, word games, and trivia. Test your odd food knowledge with Cat Cora. Stage superhero fights with the great Wyatt Cenac. And roll a 20-sided die with David Harbour from Stranger Things. Ask Me Another is your favorite game night, but a whole lot funnier. Play along now on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. We'll get back to my conversation with Stretch Armstrong in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket, our sister show. Pop Rocket's a weekly conversation about everything we love to love in pop culture. It's got a panel that is absolutely stacked with some of the smartest, funniest culture analyzers out there today. And this week, Pop Rocket's got a very special guest host, too. Comedian and comedy writer Jordan Morris. Jordan's my buddy. He's a writer on At Midnight, and he co-hosts Jordan Jesse Go, my comedy podcast. So, Jordan, what's going on on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week on Pop Rocket, we're talking about Oscar predictions, snubs, and surprises. We talked about Amy Adams, Annette Bening, how current politics are seeping their way into award shows, and, of course, the best movie of the year that the Academy won't acknowledge, pop star Never Stop Never Stopping. Oh, come on, Academy. The movie was hilarious. Sounds good. Pop Rocket. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. It's a bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is DJ Stretch Armstrong. Between 1990 and 1998, he co-hosted the Stretch and Bobito Show, the first radio home for rappers like Jay-Z, Biggie, and more. I want to play some great music from your radio show. This is featured in the documentary that you produced about the show called Stretch and Bobito Radio That Changed Lives. It's the notorious B.I.G. And in this clip, he's still like a teenager, right? In the film, his DJ, 50 Grand, who you see in the film, he's the one that actually brings the tape to the studio for us to listen to for the first time since we heard the actual episode live in the film you're, you're seeing our our authentic reactions to hearing biggie's segment on our radio show for the first time we didn't we, we never record, recorded it from when he came up back then we don't even know the date of when he came up because i i i don't even know why i guess if we had taped it we would have dated it but it's just one of those things that's been in the ether for you know 25 years and we finally found someone who had the tape that was Biggie's DJ 50 grand and he came up to the studio and we we filmed him giving us the tape and us listening to it and it's totally that's not a, a dramatization that's legitimately us being 
incredibly surprised by how good his performance was and how, how great the moment was. Let's hear the notorious B.I.G. as an 18-year-old in about 1990 on Stretch and Bobbito's radio show. First time ever on the radio. We got the notorious B.I.G. in, in the house. What's up, B? And I love this chillin', this chillin', you know? Let's right. go. So what's up, yo? You rolled up here, you know what I'm saying? You ready, you ready, ready? Yeah, I was looking for them Bronx Zoo brothers, though, you know what I'm saying? Oh, where, where, yo? I just think they came off. You know what I'm saying? I just came to set the record straight. Mumbling and whispering is what I hear when B.I.G. appear on the scene. Get scared. Well, I'm not to stick up, man. I don't want the rings on your hand. I don't understand. When I come through the avenue, I must know voodoo. Because all eyes are on you know who. And my so-called friends beg for ends for me to lend. But this bankroll, they won't spend. Open your eyes and realize ain't no sugar in my tank. Out of all my friends, it's just one I want to thank. My man Big D taught me a lesson that was great. That good things come to those who wait. And we waited through the suffering and pain. And drive the like the A-train. That's why I flip. Keep a burner to my hip. Take a to the crib. You know she got a strip. Stay dip. Take out of state trip. One of the funny things about your radio show is that, you know, you're doing it at this college radio station. You're doing it overnights, which is why they're swearing on the show. Um, <laughs> and you basically, like, people are just, like, ringing the doorbell and coming on up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, ringing the doorbell and hopefully not, not coming on up. I mean, we, we the entire show was uh, self-produced by me and Bob. There, You know, we had interns, um... So we we did have you know we had some help in in running a radio station and you know r- running a radio station I mean r- doing a radio show if you have producers is, re- is really simple you show up and you DJ and you host and you've got a producer manning the board and you've got someone you know there's security and there's people at the front and there's a guest list and whatnot and we didn't have any of that um, so in in a, in a way we were we were kind of a, a little bit vulnerable and just sitting ducks um, <laughs> but. Um, that that rarely became an issue. Um, I think we look back on that time and we we wonder if things would have been different if the show uh, didn't end at five in the morning. I think if people um, could wait for us outside at a reasonable hour, they may have. <laughs> but <laughs> nobody wants to wait till five thirty a.m. <laughs> uh, so that 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 was a that was a help um, that that helped us. Uh, escaped the 90s unscathed. Um, I would say um, there was only one incident where the front door got bum-rushed and the station vet vandalized, and that was that was in, uh, I think that was in, in 91, and we got we got uh, banned from the airwaves for, I think, two weeks. We got punished. Um, that was about as bad as it got. But yeah, you know, I, I know that if, if that show was earlier, we would have been in trouble. <laughs> what happened the time that you got bum-rushed? Well, the door got bum rushed. We didn't get bum rushed. Yeah, I was uh, I was actually out of town, um, and I was the one that had the, the 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 FCC license. So, technically, for us to do our show, I had to be there, and I had a gig at Vassar College. So I, I told Bob, I was like, "Yo, I'm going out of town. Hold the station down. Don't answer the door." <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, we're cool now, but back then. Um, ICU, who was down with um, Boogie Down Productions, um, he went to the station and Bob told him he couldn't come in and he, he took that as a personal offense and and that was that. Apparently he he, he found out how to get into the station um, even though the door was supposed to be locked once Bob closed it, but he got in and he, um, he expressed his um, upset by, by uh, effing up the station. Um, and uh and of course that led to um a, a funny incident in which um I bumped into ICU's uh homeboy Tree, who was also down with BDP at the time, and I I told Tree what had happened and, and I I I was pretty honest with my feelings about about ICU, especially since we were, you know, huge supporters of, of anything Boogie Down Productions was doing. So it just felt like a slap in the face, um, and uh, and I I called I called ICU uh, a name to Tree, and when Tree saw me, when Tree heard me uh, call his his homeboy, um, what I called him, he said, "Hey, hey, hey, you can't say that about him. That's not cool." 
And at that moment, I knew that tree was going to go tell ICU <laughs> that I was talking <laughs> smack about him. And sure enough, um, about, I think, three weeks go by, and I get, I'm get i getting out of a taxi to go to Soul Kitchen. Soul Kitchen was at, for your listeners that don't know, Soul Kitchen was a, a funk soul revival party um, that uh, Frankie Inglese, the DJ, and Jack Luber, the promoter, through, and it's called Frankie Jackson Soul Kitchen. So, I got a I, I got a Soul Kitchen. It was at Wetlands, a which is now a uh, a condo um, in Tribeca. And I'm, as I'm getting out of the cab, I see ICU standing on the corner, and I was like, "Damn, damn, damn, damn! What am I gonna do?" Um, so I got out of the cab and I I walked towards ICU and. I see you as someone I would have said hello to, you know, you know, a, a thousand times. I, it's someone I'd see in clubs all the time, and we'd, you know, we'd give each other pounds and say what's up. And but this time, um, it wasn't going to be like that. He put his arm around me. He was a he's he's a large guy. He's got really big hands, and he was like, "Yo, stretch." Um, really not happy with what you said about me. I want to talk to you. So we walked into Soul Kitchen, Wetlands. The place is ram packed and. As we're walking through the through the crowd, and of course, you know, I'm I'm six six. He's he's nearly that tall. These two big men walking through the crowd. Everyone's giving us room. We end up in the middle of the club, and everyone there can sense that something bad is about to happen. <laughs> and what in, in the area we were we were in, um, it went from being you know packed shoulder to shoulder to to us being in the middle of like a like a 30 foot empty ring with a with a perfect circumference of people around us like we were like a you know like this was a circus or something and I was like wow I'm gonna get my ass handed to me at Soul Kitchen in front of all my friends this is gonna be really (laughs) really really humiliating (laughs) um and uh and so that was like that was my first uh my first beef from uh from the radio um and and uh you know it's funny when you're in those situations sometimes um you lose uh you lose the ability to 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 think straight and you you sort of go into the sort of, sort of uh automatic way of of being like you you might even say something that you didn't even think you were going to say but you do and 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 in that moment, I see who's clearly someone that could, you know, kick my ass. You know, he said, um, yo, I don't like what you said. Um, and we can handle this right here, right now. Or you can just, you know, apologize. And he was really surprised when I when I told him that, look, I said what I said and, and I meant it. Because what you did was, well, it was dickish. I don't know if I can say that, but you can bleep it out. <laughs> um, that's... Uh, that's a derivative of the word that I called him, um, and uh, and he was totally shocked that I said that because he was expecting me to to cop out. Um, of course, by then um, or around shortly immediately after that, Dante Ross and Clark Kent, two friends of mine, um, they came up to me and they were like, "Yo, I see you touch him, and uh, you know, it's on with us." Um, so it was nice to have that support, but. Um, yeah, you know, I learned something about myself that night, which was that um, um, I didn't <laughs> out, <laughs> which is uh, which was a surprise because <laughs> I, you know, I, listen, I'm not I'm not ashamed. I've got no experience fighting. I never I I just didn't grow up in that environment. So um, yeah, I was scared, but I I held on to my convictions, um, and uh, I've seen ICU since, and we're cool. So this was not uh I'm not trying to throw ICU under the bus. <laughs> Although I may have rekindled this. Um I'm pretty sure he doesn't listen to uh NPR in any capacity. So, so. um although he should. Yeah. Um I, I want to play some more music from your radio show. Uh we have this clip of Jay Z uh in nineteen ninety five on the show. Uh who was Jay Z in nineteen ninety five? Um, Jay-Z was, uh, you know, an up and coming MC, um, who, uh, you know, I, I don't remember what I knew about him at the time. I mean, I know now, um, and I knew shortly after that, that he was getting money, um, from, uh, other avenues than rap. Um, 
Jay-Z? No, you're kidding. He's never mentioned that. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but he was a, you know, he was a beast lyrically. Um, he came highly recommended by Clark Kent, who was, I would say, his his original evangelizer and producer. What what I can tell you about our, our recollection of that night was that Jay-Z exuded a confidence uh, that was usually reserved for... Um, multi-platinum artists. I mean, he had this complete and utter cockiness, really. I mean, he just, it was, I mean, it was, it was almost off-putting. We were like, yeah, who, like, <laughs> who is this guy? Like, you know, we've had some pretty esteemed guests on this show and, and none of none of them have acted like that. I had to say, like, uh, his verses on, on this freestyle are really strong and it's colored in my mind by the fact that I just imagine not the contemporary Jay-Z or even the, you know, peak of his powers, 1998 Jay-Z, but I basically just imagine him in that Hawaiian shirt with the lei around his neck from uh, the... Hawaiian Sophie yeah, jazz, yeah. From the Jazzo video for Hawaiian Sophie. Yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious. Wow. Jay, I mean, Jay is... Uh, I think his his stature and personality sometime overshadow um, the fact that he is a supremely gifted lyricist and poet, and that's really on display here. Um, no one really knew who he was at this point. Let's hear Jay-Z on the Stretch and Bobbito show in 1995, and my guest is DJ Stretch Armstrong. I act like Goldie, go back like the oldie, but the goodie, pulling up and be wearing hoodies. They don't be knowing the way y'all be flowing when I be going. I be running the track like Jesse Owens. I disrupt the natural scheme the way that you do things with a swing and have them rocking like... You say never you run, if ever you come, it's never you run. So fast in your life to never have one. Come on and ride the rhythm, I produce like Just like the cars, I start with knowledge and follow with wisdom. For greater understanding, I'm landing, blows in, knocking sense into those that oppose me. Enticing when slicing through tracks, you're screaming Jesus. Christ is back and God knows he can rap. Me and L put rhythm on the map, so give him his dab. And me, I just take mine. Give me those, give me this, give me that. That. You never see me stress energy, yes, on the prize. My greedy eyes can't see no... You talk in the movie for a moment about, you know, the way that you feel about the 1990s is something that you can, you will never be able to reproduce with new music. And, you know, part of that is just the feeling of getting older. You know, I'm 35. I'll never be able to recreate the feeling of the first time I heard you know, whatever, Swan Lake by Black Alicious. But part of that, I think, is that you lived in a world where uh, hip-hop could still feel like a community. Um, and that was reflected on the air, that there wasn't really that much distinction between so-called underground hip-hop and street hip-hop and pop hip-hop, that it was kind of the last moment that one radio show could be everybody rolling through. Yeah, and I think over the course of the 90s that um, I think that dynamic um, decreased to the point where at the end of the 90s I just wasn't feeling it. But yeah, I think that's that's well said. Um, you know, when, when Bob and I started the radio show in 90, our tastes were almost, almost perfectly aligned. Um, and by... By '95, um, just as a as a reflection of that uh, of how things were changing, um, each of us individually were aligning ourselves with, um, you know, with with what were becoming um, defined subgenres of hip hop. So yeah, in, in the early '90s, there was good rap and bad rap, or as I said, rap and C rap, and. Uh, and yeah, you know, I would say for a good a good four or five years, it was it was pretty magical. I mean, there are there are other elements at play as well. Um, there's the 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 business of music um, got in the way. I think uh, the rules regulating um, sampling really hindered the the aesthetic goals that that you know that, that producers were were trying to were, were aiming for. And before sampling really became almost, you know, prohibitively expensive when producers could really sample, um, I think in the 90s you really 
Um, you saw, you know, a number of producers really taking hip hop production to to its heights, and I don't think it's really, um, I don't think it's really gotten better than. I, I, it's personally, I, I, I just think that early to mid '90s hip hop at its best, whether you're talking about Nas or Biggie or Pete Rock and Seal Smooth or Tribe, um, it does not get any better than that. I mean, even even now, when you when you listen to groups that that have that sort of that aesthetic um as part of as part of what they're aiming for um they uh they create something that might be um that might be good that might be um you know close to that but i don't think that um they're ever going to surpass it it seems like it was also a time when being in new york city you could still reasonably claim to be at the center of all hip hop in a way that by the late 1990s, it was much more difficult to claim because it was a truly national art form. And that's that's not to say that, I mean, look, I saw, I noticed Casual in the movie. I'm from the Bay Area. It's always nice to see the Hyro Imperium representing. But like, um, yeah. but, you know, the, the, by the late 1990s, Atlanta was as much the center of hip hop as New York was. Um, Los Angeles was as much the center of hip hop, you know, so on and so forth. So that there wasn't this feeling of the immediate physical presence of the entire world of hip hop that you had with people ringing the doorbell at the, you know, at WKCR. Absolutely. And and also, you know, even though we were supporting groups like Hyro um, and Scarface and Farside and Freestyle Fellowship and 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 the Ghetto Boys, all those artists were were really um, creating um, their interpretation of a New York of a New York sound, um, and and that's why that's why we dug them. Um, not because they were emulating New York, but because the type of music they made was the type of hip hop hip hop that we loved, which happened to be New York style hip hop. And yeah, that that as soon as uh, as soon as radio was deregulated, um, starting you know in the mid to late nineties playlists from you know from radio stations across the country were being um heavily influenced by you know by central offices that were that were really um pushing music down our throats that that I really felt you know wasn't anything that any, anyone really wanted to hear in New York I mean hearing Master P on the radio in New York City was was crazy but they did it enough that people ended up liking it um and that's you know that's the that's the mentality of a lot of people who listen to the radio. You, you play them something enough, and they start to like it. And that's why radio stations play, you know, how many songs in a day are in rotation? Not more than 40. Stretch Armstrong, thanks so much for taking all this time to come and be on Bullseye. It's great to get to talk to you. Yo, thanks so much. I had a great time. DJ Stretch Armstrong is half of the legendary hip-hop radio show Stretch and Bobbito. There is a documentary about them called Stretch and Bobbito, Radio That Changed Lives, that Stretch produced. Stretch also has a brand new book that is spectacularly beautiful. It's called No Sleep, NYC Nightlife Flyers, 1988 to 1999. We try to close Bullseye with a recommendation from me personally. It's The Outshot. Next time somebody tells you how vital and exciting Saturday Night Live's political sketches are, just nod quietly. You don't need to get in a fight with them. You know, Saturday Night Live's got to do some topical stuff. But you know what the real good stuff is. You know about Wells for Boys. With Fisher-Price play sets, some kids can be four-star chefs. Some kids can win the race. But some just long to be understood. Introducing Wells for Sensitive Little Boys from Fisher-Price. Wells for Sensitive Boys to wish upon, confide in, and reflect by. Everyone's favorite SNL sketches were on TV when they were 13 years old. That's just a truism. When you're 13, just watching TV for an hour and a half that late at night seems like getting over. Everything about the show is magical when you're 13. And then 20 or 25 years later, you grow up and all of a sudden you're writing hot takes for Vulture or whatever with the headline Saturday Night Dead. But there are times, there are times when even to a grizzled 30-something like me, something on SNL breaks through. Something feels like it belongs in the pantheon, like right away.
That is Wells for Boys. He'll enjoy running his little fingers around the edge of the well. On days when he's had too much, he'll lean on it and contemplate his reflection. Some kids like to play. Others just sort of wait for adulthood. So what is he putting in there? A secret. It's two minutes of magic for anyone who's ever felt dreamy. By the time it got to the balcony, I was nearly in tears. Sort of combination laughter, feelings, tears. Also, check out other cool new toys for our sensitive boy line, like balconies for when they're ready to announce something, or a shattered mirror to examine the complex contradictions of their being. It's a sausage factory, SNL. An hour and a half of live TV every week. Somebody's got to put on the Trump wig. Somebody says live from New York. That's all fine. It's good. But sometimes somebody sneaks in something really special. Something for us. That thing's weird. I don't get it. That's because it's not for you. Because you have everything. Everything is for you. And this one thing is for him. That's my outshot. Come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters, overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park in Los Angeles, California. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows here at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. Thank you. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org, and I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.